This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Paul Krugman, and you probably know him from his ubiquitous New York Times columns. Uh, if you don't know him from that, you must know him from from television, from his, all of his books, including his textbooks. He was the 2008 winner of the Nobel Prize, as well as just too many honorifics to list. Uh, if you are remotely interested in any of the following, economics, uh, income inequality, climate change, the history of economic development and thought, how public policy affects the population, um, healthcare law, climate change law, go down, go down the list. We just wonk out on everything, and it's just an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my MIB interview with Paul Krugman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest today is Paul Krugman. He is the winner of the 2008 Nobel Memorial Prize for his contributions uh, to new trade theory and new economic geography. He is a distinguished professor at the CUNY Graduate Center of the City of New York. Uh, he spent much of his career teaching at MIT and Princeton, where he focused on economics. He has either authored or edited 27 books, published over 200 scholarly articles. Most recently, his book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and a Fight for a Better Future, just came out. He is the second most cited author on the college syllabi for economics and is perhaps best known as a columnist for the New York Times. Paul Krugman, welcome back to Bloomberg. Hi there. It's good to see you again. Let's jump right into this. So I recall you telling a story that you were a science fiction geek as a kid. How did Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy lead you to economics? Isaac Asimov wrote this, you know, these, these books, uh, I think it's 1940 or thereabouts, uh, which are, you know, it's, it's a galactic empire and people use blasters and have spaceships. But actually the science fiction-y part is the least of it. It's social science fiction. The, the core of the story is there's this group of mathematical social scientists, the psychohistorians, who have figured out that galactic civilization is falling and have discovered that if they intervene in just the right way, they can limit the period of barbarism. So it's basically social scientists save the universe. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be one of those guys. And economics was as close as I could get. That's pretty amusing. People may not know that you are an economics textbook author. You and your wife wrote what is today the second most popular economics textbook in colleges today. Who, who's the lead? Is that Mankiw? Uh, yeah, I'm afraid it's Greg Mankiw. He's <laughs> so whatever led you to write a textbook, that sounds like a lot of work. Actually, yeah. So the, the first thing about it is that nobody writes one of those principles books except out of ignorance of how much work it's going to involve. Mm -hmm. The actual the, the, the labor that's involved in producing, especially the first edition, but even the revisions, is enormous. Partly, it's a, it's a reasonably honest way to make a living. It, since it is my But my, teaching is not? Well, it's supplemental. So since my wife is my co-author, our in-house name for the book is Economics 401k. Um, that's funny. But it was also, we thought, 
uh, that it, we could have a different kind of textbook. That uh, people, most students come up thinking economics is this totally dry subject. And, you know, some of it is. I've got to admit that. But there's stories. So we thought we could try to write a textbook which was as much as possible story driven. It was about real world things. And then we say, here's how economics helps you make sense of these things. And so we wrote a, a textbook that was different, and a lot of people like it. And you were, you were still doing the revisions on the textbook while you were in Stockholm uh, for the Nobel oh, Prize? Is that, that true? That edition, that was second edition. And the financial crisis broke as we were going through pages. So we already were in, in galleys. And suddenly nothing in the money and banking chapter was true anymore. <laughs> and so we were frantically working to revise that, that chapter in pages so every replacement passage had to exactly physically fill the space of the stuff it replaced. So yeah, we uh, I had a lot of stuff I had to do in Stockholm. Robin spent a large part of the time on the floor of our hotel room crawling from one set of papers to another uh, doing Amazing. the revisions. That was insane. You had written, or maybe I read it in an interview about a decade ago, that at the top of the dot-com bubble, you said, Gee, the stock market doesn't make any more sense. I'm, I'm going to pull out of equities. Is, was A, was that true? And that, B, how did you? That was true then. We have, in fact, gotten back in some. Still, I think, uh, probably our portfolio is less equity heavy than, than probably the, the average. But Well, 20 years ago, you were, what, early 50s, late 40s? Uh, I was, no, 20 years ago, I was uh, late 40s. Late 40s. So you should have equities then. And now, less equities. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, it, I mean, I don't claim to be a great investor. In fact, uh, uh, Robin's got the better head for detail, which is important. So we, uh, uh, we own a lot of you know, selective um, real estate, not, not the things mm -hmm. where we think we know something. Okay. Well, real estate goes up over time as well. So, wait, if, when you say you've partially gotten back in, does that mean – your some stocks, some bonds, some real estate. Yeah. So you have a diversified portfolio. We have a portfolio. diversified portfolio. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. There's another issue I have to ask you about, which is that of media bias. Um, lots of people these days have accused the media of being fake news or biased or whatever. You take a decidedly different perspective on bias. T tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the biggest – So. By and large, the media get facts right, uh, the, the formal media. I mean, that's not obviously true of you know, Breitbart or something like that, but the, but the New York Times gets its facts right. Mm -hmm. uh, the, what it doesn't do very well is it, it doesn't know how to handle things where there really aren't two sides to a debate. When, when there's a, 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 I, one of the very first columns I wrote back during the 2000 election said that if, if Bush had, uh, had said that the earth was flat, uh, the, the headline would probably read, views differ on shape of the planet. <laughs> right? the, the media are really terrible, and that's very hard to – that's a, a real problem when you have a, not just a highly polarized political environment but an asymmetrically polarized political environment where one side of the debate is – peddling zombie lies, uh, and the other is is not. Uh, and so it, it's very there, – there's a real failure, I think, to inform. There's an uh, unwillingness to – I mean, when I started out, I was 
literally forbidden to use the word lie in my columns. Mm -hmm. And that's no longer true. But even so, there's a tremendous bias towards even-handedness even when the hands are not remotely even. So you get this false equivalence where both sides are are treated equally. The the other thing that you have referenced as a form of bias that I've always been amused by is the concept of, quote, very serious people. That's right. What what are the very serious people? So very serious people, the phrase actually, a lot of it comes from the buildup to the Iraq war when all the serious people thought it made that this was a good idea, uh, which it wasn't, obviously. Um, but very serious people are people who buy into what is a conventional wisdom of the time, something that... Uh, important people say, and everybody thinks it's serious because all of the other serious people are saying it. And they all nod their head uh, in that's no right. agreement. It's, it's mm. a, so, like the, you know, the U.S. debt levels are a major threat, mm. even uh, though that's not really true. Or you know, the um, uh, we have a, a real problem of uh, of, of a, a skills gap in the workforce, mm. and th- so these are things. That, uh, so I, I I stole it. I think I stole it from the blogger Atrios, but it, it, it really works. These things that – and that's, by the way, where the media drops its even-handedness on this. So a lot of reporting on debt it was uncritically Bowles and Simpson are great national heroes. Uh, so it's, and Who? Yeah, remember right. that? But the, but the whole – so it's funny that the one place where the, the news media really dropped the false equivalence and start saying one side is right is, in fact, where that side happens to be wrong. But they're very impressed by titles and by positions and by some academic credentials. And if you're the head of a think tank, they think you're actually thinking when really you're not thinking. Well, they yeah, they are impressed by think tanks, uh, which is really a bad idea because uh, there are think tanks and then there are think tanks. And a lot right. of the think tanks don't actually think. Uh, they're very impressed by uh, – Rich people, powerful people. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, if Jamie Dimon says we have a, a skills gap, that must be serious. Whereas you know, Jamie Dimon is no doubt a great business person, but he doesn't know anything about macroeconomics. So uh, it it it's a uh, really a, it, it is a real problem. It, the uh, it, on many issues, the going to important people is absolutely the worst place to get information because they're people who have a stake in a particular point of right. view, and uh, or or they're too busy to actually think hard. So it, it is a, you know, that's, those are the places. Now, it's gotten better, I have to say. The, uh, the, the Times um, now has several people writing who actually do understand some economics, don't uncritically accept stuff. We've got a whole section, the upshot, which tends to be analytical pieces right. from multiple disciplines. So it's better than it was, but still. Uh, the, so the, those are the biases. It's not liberal bias. Uh, it's not even actually conservative bias. So there does very serious people tend to be somewhat right of center, but it's it's mostly it's it's seriousness and even handedness on things which are in fact not serious and in fact where you shouldn't be treating equal both sides equally. Let's talk a little bit about free trade, which is what you won your Nobel for. Free trade has been the cornerstone of U.S. economic policy. Why has it gotten such a bad? reputation uh, amongst some economists and a lot of people in this administration. Economists love free trade for some good reasons and some not so good reasons. We love free trade because, in fact, there's a lot to be said for it. There's a, it's particularly important, really, for smaller, poorer countries. Try and think about what would happen to Bangladesh without the ability to export clothing. It would probably literally be starving to death. So trade, open markets, doesn't have to be 
precisely free trade, but open markets are really important for a lot of the world. It's always been the case that if you did it right, uh, you understood that while free trade generally makes all countries richer, uh, it doesn't make everybody within the countries richer. Mm -hmm. It has in effects, possibly strong effects on the distribution of income. Uh, now, we tried to quantify that a little bit, and there's no question that it, it's a, growing world trade has been some a, a source, nowhere near the dominant source, but a source of rising inequality within the U.S. Um, what we really missed, and which has been where a lot of the academic research has gotten, we missed how concentrated the negative effects are, right? So you you take a look and you say, look, okay, we're we're importing a lot of stuff from China that we didn't used to import. Uh, one of the things is furniture, so we're importing lots of furniture from China. Furniture, clothing, but toys. I like furniture as a particular example because if you ask, all right, how many jobs were displaced by Chinese imports of Chinese furniture? 50, the answer 000? is maybe it might it's more, probably more than a hundred thousand. Okay. Uh, maybe even 200,000. But, you know, the other jobs were created, lower price to consumers. How big a deal is that? Well, if you happen to be in Hickory, North Carolina, mm -hmm. which is a city that is built entirely around the furniture industry, all of a sudden for that community, it's a devastating impact. Sure. So we missed the extent to which the U.S. economy is gigantic uh, and it's churning all the time. A million and a half people are fired every month. So you say, how much difference can this trade make? Well, the trouble is that the, the impacts of trade have tended to fall quite heavily on specific communities. And uh, mea culpa, I didn't see that. And it really took a, a, a very good paper uh, about, you know, published in uh, in in 2013, I think, uh, on the China shock, um, that among other things, written by one of my students, uh, and to to point out how much we were missing that effect. So, lots of um, countries have an industrial policy. Shouldn't there be some sort of hey, if you're in West Virginia coal country or in North Carolina furniture country? or in the broad loom and fabric areas that are yeah. specifics to certain states, when it's apparent that a region is getting decimated because of global trade advantages, where it, essentially global labor arbitrage and, and some of the improved technologies that become specific to elsewhere in the world, why don't we do a retrain, re-educate, give people new skills so they can compete even if it's no longer in coal or furniture? Well, we try. And it, uh, actually, we've had trade adjustment assistance uh, at various points in our history. It's never been tremendously successful. And by the way, trade is not unique. You know, technology does it, does it. If you actually want to ask what happened to West Virginia, international trade, it turns out, is not an important thing for West Virginia. It's changes in the technology. Fracking. Fracking. And even before fracking, it was mountaintop removal. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, instead of employing thousands of workers to mine coal, you just blow the tops off mountains and use some there machines. There it is. Right. So um, <laughs> now you can't have a policy to, or it's, it's hard to have a policy to deal with every shock. What you really want is a strong safety net mm -hmm. so that at least some basics are supplied, so at least people have the resources, among other things, the resources to move or seek different jobs, uh, whatever. The little secret of American policy is that we actually have a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually have, because the major social programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, are paid for at the federal level, right. mostly, um, because the tax system 
is, uh, it, at least the federal tax system is fairly progressive, we actually end up providing a lot of de facto uh, aid to distressed regions. And you take Kentucky, it's receiving net aid from the federal government to the tune of about 20% of GDP. Wow. So, you know, we don't, we actually do do a lot. Now, that doesn't, it's not clear that we have anything that can, we can replace the, a fair bit of the income that's lost. We can't replace the dignity. Mm-hmm. And, but it's not clear that anyone knows how to do that. Another thing that's kind of interesting that you've written, quote, international trade and trade policy aren't nearly as important as people think they are. People love to go on about international trade because of a variety of reasons, but among other things, it sounds important. It's international. It's global. Uh, my parents once gave me a sweatshirt that said Global Schmobile on it. I said, what? <laughs> and they said, every time you go off to a conference and we ask you what it's about, you say Global Schmobile. You know, people love to talk global. Uh, and... Um, uh, which means that we exaggerate. You know, compare, we, sh- we spend about the same share of our income on imports and on health care mm-hmm. as a nation. Uh, trade, even, after, even with the Trump tariffs, trade is sort of only, it's mostly actually pretty clean. Health care is a howling mess. Right. So health care policy is much, much more important than trade policy. And, but that's not reflected in the way we talk about the, the, the world. So, so let's talk about changes to some of the trade policy. We had... I recall Ross Perot talking about the great sucking sound that NAFTA was going to create, yep. pulling all those jobs south of, of the border. Uh, Trump effectively ran on that, and now we've tossed aside NAFTA with USMCA. We're all so much better now, aren't we? Right. So I have people I know have been calling USMCA the village people who agree. Right. Uh, um, and it's... Uh, USMCA is basically NAFTA with Trump's name stuck on it. Um, it is it not all that different than what? Tr- it's not, 95% of it is just the same thing as before. And there's a few other things. The one place where there's some significant difference is it actually gives a little bit more protection clout to labor unions, which is why Democrats voted for it. In the U.S.? In the U.S. Really? Uh, in Mexico, too. But it, it was kind of a pro-labor union change in policy. Not big deal, but enough so that uh, Richard Trunka of the AFL-CIO said, you know, vote for this, and and the Democratic caucus uh, voted it through um, because there was something in it for organized labor, which I'm sure was not... I'm not sure whether that was you know over Trump kicking and screaming or whether he just didn't even know that he'd done that. But anyway, he's that's, quite that's, the policy wonk, uh, right? So uh, he, he he knows, unlike everybody else, that Kansas City is in Kansas. Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, post Super Bowl, congratulations! Yeah, yeah. That was pretty. So but, uh, a few people pointed out um, that it's actually in Missouri. Yeah, well, kind of uh, people in Missouri kind of noticed that. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about your book, which I found quite intriguing, filled with all sorts of fascinating topics. Let's begin with the great financial crisis. You had some very prescient columns in 05 and 07, running out of bubbles, that hissing sound coming out of real estate, and innovating our way to financial crisis. All of these predate 2008. What were you looking at that gave you such a clear view of the financial crisis that was coming? It was just clear that on the normal metrics, uh, things like the you know, prices to rent, uh, the, uh, that housing had gone way out of sight. Right. And you just said, yeah, is, there, is there a good reason for this? To, and then you, if you were... There were the kind of the telltale informal signs, you know. If, if um, the dot com bubble, I thought I, I had an inkling that things were going to be bad when I realized that in when you went, when you went into a bar 
they tended to have CNBC on in the bar in, instead of sports. And then uh, I have a very vic- vivid recollection of that era where where stocks became the national pastime. Right. And then so if you go back to around 2005, it was shows like Flip This House. Right. So it was the same kind of feel to it. So it just looked way out of whack. And I had an inkling, but only a partial inkling that the financial sector was out of control, that, that we didn't know what we were doing, uh, that things had gotten complicated. It was only when the crisis was in full swing that it became clear that we were in much worse shape than I'd realized, that, that, that more than half of the banking sector was, was things that weren't called banks and therefore weren't regulated like banks. And then, so shadow banking was, was a huge vulnerability. But uh, that was one of the few times when it's, it really seemed obvious that something was majorly out of whack and that something bad was going to happen. So let's fast forward a couple of years. During the second Bush term, you had been staunchly opposed to privatizing Social Security, and you wrote, quote, an amazing thing happened. For the first time since I became a New York Times columnist in 2000, my side of a policy debate actually won. How is that possible that, you know, for 10 years you're not winning any debates despite making pretty good arguments. Well, if, if good arguments won, then uh, the world would be a very different place from the way it is. And uh, look, I, I started writing during the 2000 election, and obviously- For the Times. Yes. Because you had been publishing at Slate for a good couple of years. Yeah, before, and right? Fortune as well. So, uh, but for you know, writing for the Times, I only got really political during the 2000 election because it was obvious to me that then-candidate George W. Bush was lying through his teeth on about his policies. Um, but the- um, uh, so it was a period of Republican ascendancy, and the Rep- Republican Party uh, already then, although not as much now, uh, was dominated by zombie ideas, by beliefs in the magical power of tax cuts and so on. So I was on the losing side of most of the political stuff, and it wasn't— Wait, are you telling me you don't believe the Laffer curve is a real— Oh, I believe that there is a Laffer curve, and there is a some tax rate— uh, beyond which you actually lose revenue. But I suspect that that tax rate is on the order of 80%. Or, right. and I suspect, I actually estimate that the Laffer curve is not relevant for the U.S. economy. And uh, yeah, so it, between the fact that you have a very powerful right wing, which uh, has is committed to things that are not true, and the fact that the very serious people mm-hmm. tend to go for things that are serious but not actually serious. So let's talk about a very serious person that you seem to have a constant um, ongoing argument with, Paul Ryan. You you have a section called Fiscal Phonies. You yeah. specifically point out Paul Ryan. I have a problem with a group I call the uh, deficit chicken hawks. They're chicken hawks. They're, they're big deficit hawks as long as they're out of power. Once they get into power, suddenly the deficit doesn't matter. What's your beef with Paul Ryan? Well, it wasn't really with him. Uh, I mean, in fact, I, I'm not a. Uh, you know me personally. I'm not. I'm not a person that's particularly you know, into grudges, personal feuds, whatever. I don't. Uh, but Paul Ryan was a symbol both of where the Republican Party has gone, but also of what's wrong with with media coverage. I mean, the 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 media equivalents required that there be serious, honest conservatives, people who are really earnest, had interesting ideas. So there was a role that someone had to fill, except there actually is nobody like that. So they promoted Paul Ryan into that role because he 
pretended to be that kind of person. Not actually very good imitation. It was pretty obvious if you took even a few minutes reading his stuff that he was a phony, but that wasn't what people wanted to hear. So I was out there, you know, years ahead of of almost anybody else saying, hey, this guy that you're claiming it to be the, you know, the, the intellectual leader of the Republican Party is a flat-out phony and an obvious one and actually a pretty clumsy one. So uh, I, I return to him as, as an example both of where the GOP has gone and how the media can go wrong. So you said, uh, I know you personally, and I want to put a little color on that. I probably know you pretty well for, is it a decade? Probably. It was before the financial crisis. It's that more than a decade. So it's more than a decade. But the thing that I find fascinating about you, and, and full disclosure, we have these monthly salons. We go to dinner. I see you pretty regularly. I think that something I wrote was the subject of your very first blog post at Conscious of a Liberal. You'd since backfilled, so it's hard to judge. I can't meaning, tell. But I, I recall seeing that and posting it and saying, oh, look, Paul Krugman is uh, blogging. Um, I'm fascinated by your public persona yeah. and how what people think of you because of your columns is nothing like what you're like in the real world. You're yeah. a very different person in the real world, in, in reality, than I think what people see in terms of your columns. Yeah, I'm a pussycat. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm quiet, shy uh uh, not at all, you know. It, I'm not a very angry person or any of those. Not things. at all. You're you're optimistic. You're upbeat. You're funny. People don't realize you have a sense of humor. Um, yeah. Sometimes a sharp sense of humor, but still, I don't know if I would use the phrase happy-go-lucky. But you're a pretty easygoing, happy yeah. person. Yeah, it's a, not your image. Yeah, because people look and say, "Well, those are you know tough." Columns, which they are. He's angry. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm just realistic. Uh, and I mean, sometimes I'm angry, but that's a. But it's 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 a, you know, it's a policy anger. It's a it's about, uh, about about how we how we handle the world, person to person. I'm uh, you know mild mannered uh, Clark Kent or something. Okay, that that that's pretty fair, Clark Kent. And and one of the things that I find fascinating, is that, you're much more right than wrong. I don't mean right versus left, yeah. but on a lot of things you've discussed, broad policy issues, the result of certain things, you've been pretty dead on on everything. On the rare occasions where you get something wrong, people like jump on it and, and yeah. beat on it. But I always want to say, hey, that's the exception that pro proves the rule. If you have to, my favorite example is, you know, if Trump gets elected, we're going to have a recession or the market's going right. to crash, something like that. People pound, beat that drum constantly, and I always say, what else has he gotten wrong? It's hard yeah. to find broad pronouncements that are widely applicable that you weren't And I retracted that call three days later. Right. They don't, no one wants to talk about that. Yeah. When I retracted that call and said that, that Trump was going to run bigger deficits. That was probably going to provide some, some stimulus. And, so, and he has, and it has. Yeah. So, well, but, that, but that's, you know, that's part of... Um, why do zombie ideas persist? Well, because there's a network, there's, a, there's money behind it. I mean, there used to be a guy at National Review whose full-time job was basically to stalk me. You know, to, he wrote more blog posts attacking my columns than I wrote columns. Right. And so there's a whole industry. You know, they go after lots of people, but, it's, uh, but I seem to be a particular favorite. And uh, so, yeah, there, there's... That means because you're, you're effective. Well, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a compliment. And you know, in terms of getting... Now, if you never make a mistake, if you never get something wrong, 
then you're not taking enough risks. Right. So, uh, but but of course, if you're in a position like mine where you, there are people, you know, probably I'm par- I am paranoid, but there are in fact also people out to get me. Just, and, just uh, that's the old uh, old line. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out. Right. To get so you. there are there are well financed people out to get me. And, and, and by the way, that might be Philip K. Dick, although I could be wrong since I know you're a sci-fi buff. I don't know. I don't remember whether he used that. But anyway, um, and sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think if you take it as a whole, in fact, look, the, the five years or so after the financial crisis were in a peculiar way. They were glory days because right. the models worked. You know, people like me who had an updated, modernized, uh, but still fundamentally Keynesian approach to things made predictions about what would happen to interest rates, to inflation, what the effects of austerity policies would be, that all came out right. And all the the very serious people who said something different turned out to be wrong. So hyperinflation didn't happen. Austerity would bring us out of uh, our economic doldrums, especially in the UK. Didn't Didn't work. Basically, Keynes knew what he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Keynesians came in thinking that the multiplier, the uh, the impact on GDP of a one dollar cut in government spending, would be around one point five. And after we had five years or so of, of hard evidence, it turns out that the multiplier is one point five. I mean, it wasn't just the the qualitative, even even the quantitative stuff was dead on. Quite fascinating. I want to talk about politics because. Some of the reviews of this book and other books that you've written have described you as a political animal. But really, if you go back to the early history of Paul Krugman, Newsweek did a profile of you and called you ideologically colorblind. I think a lot of people don't know you worked in the Reagan White House. Yeah, that was interesting. That was a sub-political level, just right. below. Was you staffer. I was the senior international economic staffer at the Council of Economic Advisors. Right. So no senior, Senate approval. No. Right. Yeah, the senior domestic staff uh, staffer was a guy. What was his name? Larry Summers. Don't know what happened to him. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was a. I mean, it was high level, but technical position, right. and. Uh, um, I mean, I, I was already, I was a registered Democrat, as was Larry, uh, but willing to work. And my job did not require that I be in public defending uh, positions. And, of course, being at the Reagan administration, although Marty Feldstein, who was the chair of the council sure. uh, and who brought Larry and me down, although he was a— Princeton, Marty Feldstein? Uh, Harvard. Harvard, okay. That's right. uh, although he was a, um, uh, you know, a—, a conservative. Um, he was reasonable and on any internal debate within the Reagan administration, uh, I, I always was happy to back Marty's side of that debate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it was interesting. I mean, it was, it was, it was partially, I hope I did some good, but it was also a little bit of tourism. Got to see government from the sure. inside. So that was a different era in conservatism. They seem to be a little more, um, Rational, fact-based. Yeah, no, don't want. There, there were a fair number of strange people, even okay. in the Reagan administration. <laughs> I mean, some of the people I dealt with. I mean, I I dealt with people at economics people at the National Security Council who I who were crazy, and I thought, well, but this is not their real thing. I'm sure the actual security people are better. Right. And then along came Iran Contra, and it turned out no, they were all crazy. One of the things about where we are now is that each successive Republican president is managing to make his predecessor look good by comparison. Right. So, right. but it was well, certainly looked better, at, yeah. at the very least. So, but it was it was still it was true that that there was a lot more room for rationality then than there is now. So, most of your career not a partisan, more of a technocrat. Your role is to provide policymakers 
with information about what did and didn't work. What changed? How did you flick a switch from being an ideological colorblind technocrat to someone who has been described as a hardcore partisan? Well, two things happened. Uh, one is I changed jobs. Mm-hmm. So what you want to write if you're writing you know, working papers and publishing in academic journals is very different from what you want to write if you're writing columns for the New York Times. Right. Uh, but also the world changed, and in particular the Republican Party changed. So the Republican Party of the 1980s was still a fairly diverse group, and while there were some voodoo economics types, and uh, we were still in some, to some degree in a space where we were having real arguments about real issues. Uh, today, it's a monolithic, uh, it, it's been completely taken over by zombies that have eaten uh, the party's brains. Uh, so actually just saying things that are true, just re- saying, well, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give credence to stuff that's obviously false is a partisan act. And since you're going to be doing that, you might as well try and make that case in a strong way, and not right. not pretend that you're having a, a serious argument when you aren't. So once facts are no longer um, indisputable, once once people can say what they want to believe, how can you have a, an intelligent debate about economic policy? Well. Across party lines, you can't. I mean, you just can't. A, it's just now, off the. I mean, now, there not everything is party politics. You know, if we want to talk about monetary policy, the Federal Reserve is still a zone of actual uh, discussion and relatively non-politicized. Although Trump is trying to put some very uh, strange people on the Federal Reserve Board right yeah, now. Yeah, gold bugs and and all sorts of wacky. Yeah, uh, so that may change, but for for now, still, it's it, it's a place where you can have honest arguments. And of course, within the Democratic Party. There's serious discussion. I mean, there's no no question that there were real debates about you know, the shape of stimulus or the uh, TPP or whatever where mm-hmm. you were having. But it's true that half the political spectrum is just a complete dead zone for actual debate. So let me switch gears with you and talk about something related to this that you wrote a New York Times Sunday Magazine article about which is how did economists get it so wrong? So let me throw the question back to you. Why did the profession fail to anticipate the great financial crisis? Okay, so that actually, I mean, at some level, you know, prediction, you know, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Sure. Uh, and failing to see the financial crisis, I think that people should have seen the housing bubble because that seemed pretty obvious. But that's not the major sin. The major sin was that a substantial number of economists. Uh, enthusiastically embraced financial deregulation before the crisis, um, and at least for the, for the decades before the yeah. crisis, going back to um, the repeal of Glass-Steagall and re- much more than that, yeah, way, way even before that, yeah, and 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 then post-crisis, many of them uh, were extremely critical of fiscal stimulus, even though they should have known better. Um, and what happened there? So this is academic economics, and. Uh, to a large extent, what happened there was that look, there it, partly it's ideology. It was a kind of conservatism that the, the economics profession is kind of center right on on average. Sure. Um, so there was something political about it, but it was also we have these beautiful models, you know, the model of an efficient market, uh, efficient financial market where asset prices are always right is gorgeous. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's, it, it's, it feels great to, to play with it. Um, happens not to be true, but 
it's it's a huge lure for the profession. And then uh, after the crisis, it turned out also that the years and years of railing against Keynesian economics as being too ad hoc and so on had led to a lot of people just not actually understanding. You know, if we'd had this, if we'd had the financial crisis in 1970 instead of in 2008, we would have had a much better policy response because it was, unfortunately, the evolution of the economics profession uh, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s uh, took us f- away from understanding what we needed to understand uh, in, in the aftermath of, of 2008. So, so let's talk about how, where you physically were at different schools uh, around the country impact your understanding of that. You, you describe this in that same ar- a column as the difference between saltwater and freshwater economists. Yeah, that's which a, I love. I love that. That yeah, uh, it's actually Bob Hall came up with that one. But it's a. Uh, um, it turns out that the places that sort of kept the memory of Keynes alive tended to be places like uh, MIT and Yale and Princeton, and the places that forgot all about it tended to be places like Chicago and uh, uh, Minnesota and Carnegie. Uh, and so the it it just so turns it just so happens that places that, that I, I would say, maintained a fairly realistic view of how macroeconomics works, that were willing to actually look at the facts and not insist on the perfection of their models, um, tended to be places that were on the coasts of the U.S. as opposed to in the middle. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Berkeley clearly is is a saltwater yeah. economics thesis. Where do you put Stanford and the Hoover Institute? Oh, the Hoover Institute is a is a peculiar thing within Stanford. It's mm-hmm. a, it's it's an odd thing. It's not actually the, uh, and and Stanford is is a mix uh, ideologically, and the Hoover is this independent entity really within it. So, uh, yeah. So what what can you say? But uh, but no, definitely. I mean the. Uh, you know, Bernanke hired me at, at Princeton and then actually promptly left for the Fed, but still. Um, but Princeton was a hotbed of people who worried about Japan because we mm-hmm. thought that Japan's problems were a possible omen for the rest of us, and that turned out to be exactly right. Can you stick around a bit? I have a ton more questions okay, for you. Okay, we can do that. We have been speaking with Paul Krugman, professor at CUNY Graduate Center and author of the book, Arguing with Zombies. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things economics. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to discussing your new book, which I have right here, and just talking about um, so many other things. H- how goes the book slog? I know, and I know it's a slog. Yeah, I'm just in the early stages, as we sit here. I've just done uh, uh, two events so far. Uh, actually, you know, Samantha B in New York. She's and, so funny, isn't yeah. she? Yeah, and then what? Mark Zandi in Philadelphia, who was not quite as funny, but but was also really good. So right. So uh, so Sam Sam B. It's hard not to. When I did the Daily Show, she was the one who ran that segment. Yeah. And you just so many takes ruined because she just makes you laugh. You can't yeah. not laugh. No, we did that was fine. And yeah, but you know, I'm I'm. Um, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, so I'm not doing the the crazy uh, change cities every not day. Coast to coast, yeah. I'm not so doing you coast should to coast. do Bill Maher. He would have you on in a heartbeat. Yeah, uh, too but, far to fly. 
Yeah, although I'm actually uh, I'm doing London and Madrid because I'm big in Spain. For some very peculiar reason, I'm big in Spain. Aren't right? you affiliated with London School of Economics also? Yeah, but it's uh, it's a very loose thing. But uh, yeah, but but they advertise my books on the sides of buses in Spain for some reason. Really? Yeah, and Spanish language edition came out the same day as the English edition. So so, so where are you going in Spain? It's all going to be in Madrid, but even right. so. So we were. Uh, about th- two, maybe three September's ago, we were in um, San Sebastian, and it's in deep in the hinterlands yeah. of Spain, and it's just spectacular. I, I've spent a fair bit of time in Santiago de Compostela, mm-hmm. which is really great. Uh, the climate is really weird. The climate feels like Wales, and it's uh, uh, and they still take siestas. But it's uh, but it's it it's really it, there's a lot of great stuff. I've been, I've been I've been around a fair bit of Spain. They they know how to live there. They know how to kick back, relax, enjoy food and and wine. They're really it's a whole different headspace. Yeah, Paul, what do you think are the two most important zombies that you discuss in the book? Oh, clearly it's the belief that tax cuts pay for themselves. Wait. I thought they do. Are you telling me they don't? Didn't the Laffer Curve on that napkin say that you could cut taxes and they pay for themselves? Yeah. Uh, turns out we've had an erroneous napkin, and it has, <sighs> has never once happened. So that's the one in, that, in terms of our political life, that matters shocking. most. I, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and the other one is climate change denial. Uh, it's a know, hoax. It's a Chinese hoax. That's right. The belief that it's a hoax, or at least that it's not really serious, or anyway, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, that's, you know, as the evidence keeps on piling in and as the consequences start to show, the fact that that is still, I mean, 60 percent of Republicans in Congress are climate deniers. They deny that climate change is happening at all. The only major political party in the world with a majority that believes climate change isn't real. Yeah, although I'm not entirely sure about the current governing party in Australia, but yes. Uh, But yes, this is a, and this is really... Th- those are those are enough to go on. There are there are other zombies out there, but those are the two really big ones. Those are the big ones. Fascinating. All right, so so let me jump through a couple of questions we missed during the broadcast portion. Um, the two things I didn't get to um, that I thought were important were well, let's start with climate change, a, a well-known Chinese hoax. Right. right. Climate change uh, created by the Chinese so they could continue to dominate us on the industrial side, you call it, quote, an existential threat and a priority above health for reform, income inequality, and financial crises. Yeah. That's a big statement. Yeah, because if you make the planet unlivable or large portions of the planet unlivable, that, I was about to say, trumps everything else. So now that's so a that's word a we kind of lost. Right. So, uh, and, it, and that is, you know, we're on track to really catastrophic outcomes. Uh, it's uh, uh, The climate models have been surprisingly accurate so far, and they there all... There was just a big piece, um, I don't remember if it was Bloomberg or the yeah. Times, about, the, I think it was Bloomberg, it was the 1988 forecast, turned out to be dead accurate. Yeah, yeah, so the, it's, the, this is, you know, it's good science, it's real science, and it's scary as hell, and the thing about it also as an issue is it happens to be something we know how to deal with. We uh, a little a mixture of you know, public investment in new technologies plus putting a price on carbon, uh, it would make an enormous difference. And 
technology is is our friend here. Renewable technology has made enormous advances. Prices electrification. Sure. So we all the ingredients are in place for solving this existential threat, except that we have the uh, you need uh, leadership. Well, we we have leadership, which is trying to make sure that the catastrophe happens. So uh, what about a technological solution? So if we don't get a change in leadership, and ten years from now we find ourselves with a rising global temperature and rising sea levels, what about seeding the clouds or some magic bullet that will make all this go away? Well, you know, that's the last resort. I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, but there's enormous problems if you start to think about that because anything you do uh, that is actually uh, geoengineering right. uh, is it's going to have very uneven impacts. It's going to, it, it may stop the planet from cooking, but it will... Um, cause worsening of the climate in some places. It'll right. be very uneven. So if you're uh, upper lower Slavistan and it turns out that the United States and the European Union are planning a, a, pro a project of geoengineering that just happens as a small side effect is going to turn your country into a desert. Right. Uh, how are we going to deal with the political fallout of that? That's a, it's a, I mean, it's better than, 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 than total doom, but it's really not a route we want to go down. Have you been following the debate about climate change in Australia? It's quite fascinating. Uh, some of it, and they, you know, they're they're deep in denial. Um, At least the elected officials. The seem elected to be. officials are. So it's it's a lot like our situation, like uh, Florida. Uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a place which is is really on the. As it happens, they happen to be right at sort of the leading edge of, of disaster. The, yeah. the continent is burning. Um, but they have, like us, they have people who have an ideological opposition to any form of government action. They have uh, powerful fossil fuel interests. And Huge so, mineral and, and timber interests that don't want to change. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Australia... Uh, if you really want to feel depressed, look at Australia, where on the one hand you can see what the the shape of things to come in terms of disaster, and you can also see politically how hard it is to to do the right thing. There's a wonderful book called Windfall, uh, came out about four years ago, that traces the history of investment in climate change and new technology and all these things, and the conclusion of the book is essentially. Areas that are hot are going to get hotter. Areas that are dry are going to get drier. Areas that are cold are going to get colder. Areas that are wet are going to get wetter. And it's not so much that the climate is going to change as it's just going to be so much more intense everywhere. Uh, desertification is going to continue expanding. Places that suffer coastal flooding are going to be overwrought. It's whatever you have just multiply well, times. I'm not sure it's that simple, but it's uh, but yeah, there's a lot of things. It's not it's not linear. It's not just that every place gets two degrees warmer. It is that a lot of stuff happens in addition to that. And um, yeah, it's it's and it really really uh, it it's it's quite terrifying. And um, um, really we. You know, fossil. I, I talk in in the book about zombie ideas. Yeah. Fossil fuels is basically a zombie sector. We shouldn't be. Uh, we should be phasing out fossil fuels entirely quite quickly. And in fact, we have the technology to do that. Uh, so the uh, if we had any kind of realistic pricing 
We wouldn't be we wouldn't be digging coal. We wouldn't be uh, we might be doing a These little bit of fracking. These are every bit as subsidized as solar is. Uh, oh no, uh, more so at this point. In, in I mean, at the moment, coal is losing the battle against solar and wind, um, just on pure cost grounds. And uh, right. and you have the Trump administration trying desperately to force people to burn coal. And and the electrical the electric production facilities, all of all of the big plants that are making electricity, they're all moving to natural gas. Yeah. It's so much cheaper and cleaner. Well, they're moving to natural gas and to uh, and a lot of wind and solar. And natural gas, now, fracking is one of those things which it, uh, there, there's a lot, it turns out we're releasing a lot of greenhouse gases yes. because of lax regulation. But right. if we did it right, fracking is a good uh, transition technology because hydrocarbons you know, methane has a lot less carbon per BTU than coal does. Right. So, and it's good for surge capacity. So, you know, we we, we could, in a rational world, we'd be we'd be using a, a natural gas to provide uh, surge capacity. We'd be using renewables to provide base capacity. Uh, some nuclear, I'm I'm okay with that. Um, we would be getting it completely out of the coal business. We'd be shifting to electric vehicles. Uh, all of it fraction of a percent of GDP in terms of what it would actually right. do to growth, um, but of course not under current management. Huh. Interesting. And then the other thing we didn't get to during the broadcast portion that I have to talk about, because you've written about it so much and it's such a giant issue, is the income and wealth inequality that's in our, our society. And I have to point out that back in 1992, you were first writing about this. Yeah, I wasn't the first person to notice it, but it was already obvious. So I have a yeah, 1992 piece called The Rich, the Right, and the Facts, um, which uh, goes through you know a lot of the bad arguments that people were making against worrying about rising income inequality, all of which, all of those arguments, by the way, still being live because they're zombie ideas that won't right. go away. Um, so yeah, th this was, now it's gotten substantially worse since then. You know, by, by modern standards, Gordon Gecko was a piker. Uh, you right. know, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, that, this is Definitely, um, uh, and it 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 colors everything. I mean, the fact that we have a society where a few people have so much money, so much influence, and also where people aren't living in the same universe. So we're we're socially divided partly because we don't live in the at all in the same material universe, which is not the kind of the America I grew up in. Right. So so let's put some some numbers, some flesh on the bone. You wrote, quote, CEOs now get paid more than 300 times as much as the average worker. So how did that come about? How was it formerly a 25x or a 30x right. to now 300x? Yeah, that's a, that's actually quite an interesting story, right? It's uh, – um, now, CEOs have always pretty much appointed the people who decide how much that they'll be, they'll be paid. So in some sense, it was always a game where CEO appoints some people who have every incentive to say, this guy is great, he needs to be paid in your right. But they didn't use to exercise that power to anything like the extent that they do now. Um, what changed? Um, there was a big shift in power relations. It used to be that if you paid an extravagant sum, uh, your union would kick up. And right. of course, we the, the the death of private sector unions has meant that that's gone away. Um, it used to be that if you 
got yourself paid an enormous salary, uh, the federal government would take a lot of it away in, in higher taxes. So mm-hmm. at, at some level, if there was a question of, shall I piss off my entire workforce in order to be able to take home an extra, in order to get paid an extra million dollars? Uh, well, if I'm only going to be able to take home 150000 of that, I might not want to do it. If I can get take home a much larger share of it, then, then maybe I will. So that changed. And then just a general set of norms, expectations. One thing is clear, it's not because we're, that we have better CEOs. Right, it's for sure. That, uh, what's it's really, the same pool? They're coming from the same schools, well, and, and and look at how much money disastrous CEOs uh, end up getting in their severance packages. Right, so yeah, that's kind of surprising. There's really that sort of thing used to be. If you really screwed up, they would hit, hand you your hat and send you on your way. Yeah, not with a twenty-five million dollar exit package. Yeah. Uh, Twenty-five million. That's more than that. Anyway, but yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so this is a real. This is one of the key pieces of evidence that says that if, if you think that technology and globalization explains why we've gotten so unequal, you know, explain to me how that has means that uh, incompetent CEOs get paid as much money as they get paid. Doesn't. So there, there's a couple of bullet points that come from that. Um, first, there's a fascinating Planet Money episode on the unintended consequences of some of the employment compensation changes under Clinton, Bill Clinton, that was part of a big set of tax changes, where they tried to cap the dollar payment and allowed payment in stock. How much of that is is a source of this giant? Because when you look at stock compensation, it's the lion's share of these giant um, CEO comps. Yeah, and it's a, whether that's the result of the, of you know, the policies enacted during the Clinton years, I don't know. It's uh, it certainly is part of the part of the issue, and it. Um, I mean, there was a period when economists, uh, some of them said, you know, good, we should pay people in stock because that gives them an incentive to perform well. But it turns out it doesn't actually work that way. Partly because you get stock options, but they reset the price if the company right. does badly. For and sure. It, um, and Wait, but aren't CEOs incentive to do a good job because they're the CEOs? You have to incentivize them more. That's that's the point. It turns out, you know, back in back in the America I grew up in, again, I'm an old conjurer here. Uh, we had you know, think about you know, photos of. I always think of, of photos of, of uh, NASA and the, the, the all of these guys in uh, in short sleeve white shirts with the pocket uh, protectors. Yeah, with the pocket protectors, all of whom are being paid not all that well. None of whom have incentive pay, doing incredible things. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't of course we think of NASA, but the same thing was going on at the great technology companies at the time. So it's not it, it, it it's amazing actually to think that that I mean money matters. Monetary incentives matter, but people do good work for lots of reasons, and it, we've we've lost the notion that people might do good work because they take some pride in their work. Right. Also, it's their job not to not yeah. to go for, too far on a limb. So you've described uh, we t- we're talking about climate change and denial there before. You've described um, quote the inequality denial industry that either inequality wasn't rising or that it didn't matter. How, who can legitimately, with a straight face, say there hasn't been a giant increase in economic inequality? Well, you know, there's a, there's a 
good salary to be made from the ability to say that with a straight face, and that's really what drives it. But yeah, it's it's quite amazing. I mean, the the numbers, the official numbers show it, although we, we actually have a problem with many of the standard measures because they don't actually keep track of gigantic incomes because that's, uh, we didn't think we needed to, but because but now we do. Um, but uh, I, yeah, when, when pe- there are people out there still trying to claim uh, that inequality hasn't gone up much. And I just say, among other things, just you know, walk around. Look, 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 you know, look at, look at New York City. Look at, uh, um, at, at the way we live now. It just is not the same middle class country it used to be. And then we do have, uh, you know, we have pretty sophisticated ways of, uh, between tax data, surveys, and so on, which the Federal Reserve's new data Federal series. Reserve, that yeah. that's new. They never used to slice it as fine as they do. Top one percent, ten percent, half, and well, and, and uh, the that's fact, a big change. The top 0.01 percent. Nobody ever thought that was important. How much money could there be up there? But the answer is now a lot. Yeah. And so yeah, so it it, it this is not. There shouldn't be any real question about that. But again. Uh, uh, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So let's talk about a headline um, from a different writer that I had to ask you about because it's so fascinating. Derek Thompson in The Atlantic, uh, the weekend before we taped this, had a column, quote, this is the headline, Boomers have socialism, why not millennials? It's kind yeah. of a fascinating take. Well, there is a, yeah, I mean, it is a peculiar thing that when people say, oh, America will never stand for government health insurance, every American 65 and older has government health right. insurance. When they say Americans won't stand for wide, you know, large government guarantees of income, Social Security. Uh, so we actually do have, in fact, the U.S. welfare state, uh, it's not that it's smaller than that of other advanced countries, but not that much smaller because, in fact, we do provide health care and retirement income to people, people over who 65. Vote. To people who vote. It's probably the people who vote. But I think the other thing that happened uh, was that uh, you know, when, when Medicare came in, uh, uh, why was it possible? to go and provide government health insurance to everybody over 65. Why didn't people complain that this was taking away private insurance? The answer was that private insurers weren't interested in covering right. people over 65. There was never an They're active, expensive. Yeah, they're expensive and unpredictably expensive. Right. So the uh, so that you were basically moving into a blank space. Um, and the trouble, the reason that it's not so easy to just have Medicare for all is that um, – People under 65, many of them do have private health insurance, which both means that you have a lobby uh, uh, interest group. But I think even more important means that you're telling people, uh, you know, we're going to take away the insurance you now have and we're going to replace it with something different. Trust us, it'll be better. Plus, prob- de- plus death panels on top of it. Plus death panels. And it probably will be better, in fact, but that's a that's a really heavy political lift. And yeah. it's, uh, I mean, I, if, if you can start with a tabula rasa, um, I, I, I dedicate this book to the uh, arguing with zombies to the, to the memory of Uwe Reinhardt, a healthcare economist at Princeton, who helped me a lot. And uh, Uwe and and his wife Mei Chung, um, they actually put together Taiwan's healthcare system, mm-hmm. which is single payer. It's basically Medicare for all. And how's it working? Uh, it's working fine. But the uh, but Uwe himself said, "Look, we're not going to be able to do that in the United States. Uh, we're uh, if you want if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here." So we're, we're recording this the day of the Iowa caucuses. 
of all the Democrats who are running for office, who has the most compelling, workable health care proposal of everybody? Oh, well, that's an interesting question because um, the – I mean, they're all workable proposals on the technicalities. Mm -hmm. uh, Medicare for all would work. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has laid out a lot more detail about how it would be paid for than Bernie Sanders has, but something like that would work. Um, enhanced, massively enhanced Obamacare, which is basically what Joe Biden uh, means, uh, just extend it to cover everybody and well, extend cover, yeah. So the subsidies don't cut off, so that we have uh, uh, much reduced copays, and it's just uh, uh, that also works. There are countries that have universal health coverage that do it through private insurance companies, like the mm -hmm. Netherlands. So that's also workable. Uh, so it, I'm not sure that anyone, uh, in terms of of whose plan is. Actually, the truth is I believe that if any Democrat is elected, what we will in fact get is Obamacare 2.0, mm -hmm. that Medicare for all ain't going to happen, uh, not, not for a few years anyway. And so what we're actually going to get is something that is just a greatly enhanced version of what we, we, we managed to achieve in 2010, uh, which is fine with me. Right. And people have come to like Obamacare. In fact, the current administration, but for John McCain, would have gotten rid of it. I think that is certainly a factor in the outcome of the 2018 midterm elections. Oh, probably the single biggest factor. Really? Um, yeah, that's what most of it's. That was largely a health care election. One thing that worries me about <clears throat> Medicare for all and all that is that, it, that instead of people talking about the fact that Trump wants to take away what we have achieved, that they're going to be talking about some you know radical new proposal. Um, and we need to keep focused because, the, in fact— if Trump is reelected, there's a very good chance that he will find a way to kill Obamacare in his second term. Um, so what do you think the outcome of November 2020 is going to be? I personally idea. have no idea, although I will tee this up by saying it feels it seems like 2016 he had a thread and needle quite precisely. And it was 150,000 votes across five states that put him over the top. Yeah. And if, if Has he gained votes or lost votes since, I don't since know. then? We really don't know. I mean, it, it was also a media obsession with Hillary's emails and all of that. And Trump won in large part because nobody thought he could possibly win. He, he benefited enormously Fair. from uh, from you know coverage that that ignored the possibility of his winning and and so it was okay to beat up on Hillary because obviously Trump can't win uh, and that won't happen I hope this time uh, but God knows I mean the economy is unemployment is low although what all of the political scientists say is that what matters is how fast is the economy growing not the level but the rate of change right. in the year before the election. And 2%? Two, and 2% 2 is kind of borderline. Right. That's, that's more or less neutral. Right. So, but who knows? I mean, it, I, Trump has certainly not managed to build mass support. Uh, he has right. not he's, become more popular over time. He's got his core, his core group. He's still at whatever that is, 42, 38%. Yeah, and it's, uh, and, but Electoral College probably still gives him an advantage. Um, well, it looks like he's lost Pennsylvania already. We hope. And uh, it looks like he's lost Michigan already and sure possibly Wisconsin. Well, so, it, it is interesting that, that to the extent that Trump was making I mean, the Trump economy overall, I have to admit, it's a low unemployment economy. It's, it's the Obama economy extended out yeah, four years. But it, it, it feels pretty, you know, it, it feels good. We've, it feels good. But the peculiar thing, the amazing thing actually, is that. Where Trump's economy is bad is precisely where he promised to help. 
So manufacturing, farm bankruptcies, way farm up. bankruptcies are way up. Uh, manufacturing, we're in a manufacturing recession, recession yeah. even as even as we have. So it's possible that 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 tips the balance. Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. Yeah. That and, uh, so maybe, uh, uh, but then on. You know, the, the third hand, uh, there may be other factors coming in, and uh, it's hard. Uh, I, I I really have no ability to prognosticate on this stuff. Two, two years ago, I would have bet you a million dollars that the Senate would not change hands. And following 2018 and following the arc of all the news that's come out this year, I think it's a better than even chance that um, the Democrats take the Senate, or or at the very least, fifty fifty. It's yeah, I think that's and that wasn't true two years. No, ago. that's clear, and it's and in some a way a bad map, a challenging. You know, it's only a third of the of the seats are up each. Everybody said, oh, twenty 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 two maybe, but twenty twenty no chance. No, it's a real chance now. That's one of those things that we're there's enough. Uh, there are enough really weak. Uh, Republican senators, yeah. and it, uh, yeah, Arizona. You know, there places. Well, where she was an appointee; she never won anything. That's right, so. and 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 is lacking pretty bad. Anyway, but I try, actually I try not to running against an astronaut, OD. by the way, in Arizona. Yeah, I, I try not to OD on this stuff too much. It's, it's uh, easy the fact to do. of the matter is is that we don't know, but it's the the, the realm of possibilities. I think do range from uh, Trump victory and Republican Senate, uh-huh. probably still Democratic House, but uh, to uh, you know, Democratic victory, dem- Democratic sweep. And that would be really interesting. I mean, it would be, uh, uh, give us a chance to do, you know, Obama only had two years when he was actually right. able to do anything. So, so did Trump, only had uh, two years. Yeah. And uh, so I think if we actually look at it, uh, the, the the possibility of another, you know, we're not, we're not going to get Medicare for all. We're not going to get uh, uh, the uh, free college. Uh, free college. We're not. We're. Uh, we might get a Green New Deal. Maybe not as big as the one that uh, that you know, advocates want. But I. I would definitely be for that. And um, but on the other hand, we might. Uh, we may be on a slide into becoming an uh, authoritarian one-party state. That that has happened, and I'm. I'm really quite concerned that it could happen to us. That that would be bad if it happened. So on that cheerful note. Because I know you are heading out to Seth Meyers from here. Let's jump to our favorite question that we ask all of our guests. We call this the speed round. Um, and I'll just plow through these as quickly as I can, and we'll, we'll send you on your way. Right. Starting with, what are you watching these days? What are you streaming? What's your favorite podcast? What are you, what are you paying attention to? Okay, I actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't watch really do podcasts I, okay I very little I, I, I am listening when I can to uh, to the uh, Prince Peterson Institute trade talks which mm-hmm. is that's professional listening right um, the uh, how about watching what are you watching oh uh, Amazon Prime Amazon Netflix. Prime I've, I have both Amazon Prime and Netflix and I watch all kinds of of stuff but mostly not uh, not you know nerdy stuff so I, I'm a huge fan of the expanse. Oh God, I love that series. Right, so love thank that. and it makes me almost forgive Jeff Bezos for all the other things he's done that he rescued the expanse yeah. and has continued. This last it. season has been spectacular, it, fabulous, so, so uh, good. And actually, that's something that social science nerds like as well, which is a whole other story. So that's, and there's another season now coming right. in the future. There's another season coming. There's also going to be. Uh, 
I don't know how many people saw this, but Altered Carbon, uh, which was yes. a Netflix, uh, yeah, and that was that was a great science fiction novel, and they turned into a great series, and there'll be a right. I, I think we're having a second season coming up uh, next month. So, uh, if you like Altered Carbon, you should check out um, Electric Dreams, which is loosely based oh, on Philip K. Dick. Which I haven't, I haven't watched. Really, that one. It's the first one is spectacular, and they're all. Separate. There's not a contiguous right. series. They're all standalones. They're really, uh, yeah. really interesting. Um, and I watch lots of, of concerts. On, mm-hmm. uh, on That's YouTube. right. You're a music geek. I'm a, well, it's kind of weird. I'm a I'm a 66 year old wannabe hipster. I, I right. watch a, a lot of uh, indie music performances. Right. Have you seen David Burns on uh, Broadway American Utopia? No, I have not. Oh, it's so amazing. I've seen I it twice imagine. already. It's done February sixteenth, so you better go hurry up and see uh, it. If you missed, were talking, we missed heads, the window. I'm because uh, oh, I'm you're gonna be, leaving the country. I'm going to be le- out of the country. If oh, well. you're a Talking Heads fan, it's yeah. amazing. It's really just amazing. A great oh, well. show. Too bad. Um, and did you see? It's been you mentioned Amazon Prime. The Boys haven't watched that yet. Oh, so it's like the anti Marvel universe, like the opposite. Okay. Of where where when you when you look at the model there. Superheroes are part of a corrupt corporation that abuse their power to obtain government contracts. It's just fascinating. I probably should be into because I'm I, I the whole superhero thing by and large leaves me cold. So you so. would you would totally. So I only recommended this series to two people who could not be more different, you and Cliff Asness, and I'm betting both of you are going to love it. Okay, so put that down. Second. What's the most important thing we don't know about Paul Krugman? Okay, so we have touched on this before. I think the most important thing that people don't know is that I is that I'm a pussycat in person. That's right. Your, your whole public all, persona. The public persona somehow, even though I don't think I, you know, I don't You don't actually, encourage it. I don't encourage it. I don't insult. I don't talk about people's personal appearance. Uh, I don't, but, but your writing is barbed and effective, and yeah. people interpret that as mean and angry. Yeah. But I'm not angry, and I'm not a. Uh, I don't You're hold a grudges. Cat. Yeah. You're a mensch. Um, let's talk about your early mentors. Who influenced the way you look at the world of economics? Okay, so I had two great economics mentors. First, Bill Nordhaus. Oh, sure. I wor- uh, I was, MIT. Uh, Yale. Yale. Okay. Uh, and, uh, Nobel laureate, although yep. after me, which is kind of weird, but but he got it. Um, and I was his research assistant when I was still an undergraduate, wow. and that was tremendous apprenticeship. And then uh, Rudy Dornbush at MIT uh-huh. was a huge influence on me and on the many students, uh, so huge influence. Um, so those are the two people you know, whose personal advice, mentorship mattered a, a huge amount to what, me. What about economists? What economists have influenced how you think of the field? Yeah, so uh, the um, – so uh, although I, I wasn't – an advisor, but uh, Bob Solo of MIT, uh-huh. uh, just I a whole lot of the way I do economics, the whole writing style, which spills over to my public writing as well, comes a lot from Robert Solo, who was this great MIT economist who had this tremendous gift for taking complicated issues and turning them into simple models that illuminated the world. And I, I've always been in that. And then um, not... Uh, a simple modeler, but John Maynard Keynes. I, the, I, I was waiting for you to go there. The, the, to. Uh, it, 
maybe you have to actually do economics uh, as a you know as, as an avocation to up- appreciate the greatness. Keynes's ability to think his way out of the box in which economists were trapped at the time and see things differently. There's never been anything like it. I would say not even Adam Smith did as really? much to really just wow. say this is the world is not the way you think it is. And uh, it's an amazing performance. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk about books. What do you like to read for fun? What do you read? Uh, what do you recommend to people? Tell us some of your favorite books. Okay, so I'm a geek, uh, so I read a lot of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, anything by Charlie Strauss, uh, who I consider the greatest living uh, science fiction author. Really? Um, and uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, S T R O S S. Um, the, um, but, but lots of, uh, there we are. Actually, if you search, you can find, uh, I, I have met him. The Atrocity uh, Archives. Wow. Some yeah, of his names. The, laund- the Laundry Files novels are amazing. Really? They are, uh, they are. The Annihilation Score. Yeah. The, uh, but he's, he's incredibly prolific. And I had, uh, a memorable evening with him and several other science fiction authors who all live in Edinburgh. Mm. Where we talked science fiction and tasted single malt scotches, and I describe it as a, as a half memorable evening because I only <laughs> remember the first half. <laughs> so, give us some other books. That's he's interesting. So, I mean, and, and in science fiction, actually, I just recently, for the first time in decades, reread Dune. Oh, really? You know, is, there's a new. Uh, there's going to be a new version out. coming out, and I've, you know, the previous ones they've all screwed it up somehow. Yeah. But let's see, because that is actually an incredible book. Yes. The other thing I do is I read a lot of history. Mm-hmm. So all kinds of stuff, and I just read a a long, detailed book on the the Peninsular War, which is part of the Napoleonic Wars. But it's mm-hmm. the piece that where the the uh, Spaniards and the Portuguese, with help from the Duke of Wellington, were fighting the French in Spain. And it's uh, and the, the what was great about that was that most of the stuff that you read about that in English is very. Wellington-centered. It's very much about the British sure. Army, but this one gives you the whole panorama, which is much vaster and uh, much more brutal. Than the Peninsula a, War. Peninsula War. So right. it's, it's really from 1808 up until 1813. There was this uh, extraordinary, very grim, but but uh, fascinating struggle for, for control of Spain. And give, give us one more, and then I'm going to ask you about one. Okay, so favorite books. Um, God, so many things. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, uh, actually was very much influenced by, haven't, not, uh, but uh, 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 the philosophy of, of David Hume, mm-hmm. uh, an inquiry concerning human understanding you know, about how skepticism and, and demanding evidence made a big difference. It was actually only the years later that I realized that actually he probably was the first modern economist, even before Adam Smith. Wow. So that's really quite fascinating. So back to science fiction, um, two different people who are sci-fi geek friends, yeah. who I, I have a giant overlap with their taste. I respect what they like and don't like. When two people recommend a book, I go out and get it, but I haven't read it yet. Both recommended the three body problem. Yeah, have you have you seen? This I have still? read it. Oh, uh, you read it. What what are your thoughts on it? I mean, I liked it. I it's a full it, trilogy now. It's isn't a full it? trilogy, and it's kind of weird. I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, but it's it's Chinese. 
right. uh, science Originally, fiction. And yep. It's very different uh, in feel, and it's it's strange, but it's full of interesting ideas, and even even some character development. You know, a lot of science fiction. I have to admit, the the characters are kind of two dimensional. He does a little bit better than that with mm. the, with this, and it, uh, it's not it it's not the best. Uh, that I stuff I've read. I mean, it, I, I think maybe it may lose something in translation. I mm-hmm. don't know. Uh, but it's, oh, you didn't it's read it in the original Mandarin. No, my oh. Mandarin skills are a little All bit right. limited. So that's probably where where it fell a little it fell a little short. Speaking of fail, um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh gosh, I mean there there have been multiples, but. Um, I mean, obviously, I made a bad call about the economy on election night, twenty sixteen. Yeah, but didn't people... you roll that back pretty quickly? Three days. Okay, so but, but no one wants to hear about that. They just want to beat you with the original but, call. But it is a reminder not to let not to let you know. And I'd done some things before. I mean, I was uh, warning about a debt crisis during the Bush years, and I uh, never happened. It never happened, and I and. Uh, usually when I make these things, I, I go back and ask myself, was that actually grounded in hard thinking or was I letting my my desire to see bad things happen to bad people uh, influence right. my judgment? And that's usually what, what is the case. Do you case. think Bush was a bad person or was he just an amiable doofus in over his head? I think he was not a great person. I mean, I think he... But was he a bad person? Uh, so I'm, if you had to pick Cheney or Bush... Oh, no. Cheney was a bad person. Okay, so Bush, when I look at Bush, I look at like... All right, I don't agree with most of his decisions, but he seems kind of like a goofy. Well, utterly lacking in empathy for the people who are less fortunate than himself. Okay, so that's uh, that's, that's fair. That's fair, you know. So, but not not actively evil in the same way that Cheney was, and certainly not <laughs> in the way that, that Trump is. All right, so let's. Um, so the failure is there. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not panning uh, New York Times columns? Well. Uh, I go to as many indie concerts as I can manage. Tell us the last couple you saw. Okay. Last two I saw were uh, most recently Rena Del Cid, which is actually a, it's the uh, it, it's an indie band. It's also a person, but she's the core of it uh, from Minneapolis. Uh-huh. Does sort of folky stuff, but uh, really great fun. And I saw that at Rockwood Music Hall. Uh, uh-huh. Which is a standing-only venue. You stand there with a beer in your hand, yeah, and you're and you're uh, you're five feet from the band. So right. that was great. You stood for two hours in front of the band. I'm managing, you know, as long as I can keep on doing it. Um, yeah. All right. And then uh, That's impressive. Um, and then the one before that was uh, another uh, Larkin Poe, which is oh, blues. Sure. Uh-huh. Uh, they're uh, two sisters from Atlanta, and and they have a band. Uh, for for touring, they have a band, and their their, their records are just them plus various pieces. They're like of a drummer and a guitarist, or a drummer and a they bass add player? that. But the two of them are, are both uh, one one is slide guitar and one uh-huh. is 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 regular guitar, and the, and uh, they do uh, uh, amazing harmony vocals, and um, and that was just they got huge hot fun. recently, didn't they? They, they, they got nominated for a Grammy. A bit, they didn't yeah. win one, but they got nominated for a Grammy, and they uh, um, no, and I saw them at Bowery Ballroom, which is. Uh, uh, 550 uh, instead of 150 uh, standing, standing room people. Yeah. So, so it's all this, these are all standing with a beer in your hand concerts. Yeah, that's a tough game. The last thing I did that for was U2 at the Garden, and that has to be 12 years ago. I, I and I'm younger than you. I can't stand for two hours. Well, now. so far, so far, so good. I mean, you know, all there right. will time time when I can. Oh, and the other thing I do is I I do um, I I do bike trips now. Uh, 
Uh, I have actually done bike trips, like one the way. full trip with the chase van, and they're they're yeah, more or less. You and yeah. they're saying go two hours this direction, and there's a pace vehicle, and you're following. Well, and... not pace vehicle. There's a, a van that pops up with with bottles of cold water every once in a while, <laughs> and and takes your bags to the next hotel. And uh, so I've been doing. Uh, lately, I've been doing two of those a year. So, uh, so you're biking for seven days, effectively. Yeah, or in, actually, it's the next one, which is in Portugal, is going to be ten days. And your wife does this happily with you. Um, she actually has the last couple. She's gone and done other things and met me at the end. Okay. But, so, but I have some buddies. Uh, all of them, you know, sort of my age, who, who are all of us. You know, still saying, "Hey, we can still do this. Let's do it." And, and, and um, you could do that pretty easily in Europe. They're they're built for that more than we are. Yeah, you want to go village to village. Although right. I've done, I've done them in Vermont, I've done them in Quebec, I've done you know. So, but it's a it, it's a it's a great way to get out of your head, right? Instead of sure. instead of worrying about the fate of the economy or the fate of things, it's just can I actually get up that hill? Right, changes your focus. So, so speaking about worrying and being pessimistic or not, what are you most optimistic about these days, and what are you most pessimistic? Well, pe- I'll start with the pessimism. I think I think there's basically an even chance that we're going we're going to lose our democracy. You know, that's fifty 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 fifty. Because really, even if, even if we get past Trump, uh, the forces the of forces populism have been unleashed, and that's yeah. I mean, I, 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 for complicated reasons, I tracked the collapse of democracy in Hungary pretty closely, uh-huh. and and you can easily see. I mean, if, if Trump was as smart as Viktor Orban, we'd have lost it already. Right. And so uh, th- this is this is what really scares me most. Right. Um, uh, there's my pessimism. My optimism, um, you know, the. Americans are just incredibly more open-minded than they were. It's partly young people. It's not just young people. I mean, it, when I think back to uh, what the country was like in in the early 1980s, I mean, and you can you can see it both. Uh, you can see it in in polling, but in other things too. I mean, we, I um, as an adult, a working economist, I lived in a country where only a third of white people thought interracial marriages were okay. Uh, a, a country where, I mean, as recently as 2004, gay marriage was a major election-losing issue. Uh, we're just, we had a closed-mindedness uh, and prejudice level, and we've gotten vastly more tolerant, and that's that's got to be a good thing. So the pushback to that is, hasn't the current administration revealed, I'm not saying they are this, I'm saying Trump has revealed there's still big streaks of anti-Semitism, oh. racism, misogyny, much more in the United States than uh, a naive upper middle class white guy like myself would have guessed. Yeah. No one is anti-Semitic to me. How could it exist in the country? Ah, uh, you don't get my mail. Oh, I, I get. I used to get the blog comments. You and I have had conversations yeah. about how horrific some of the comments used to be. And I just, you know, I just chucked that up to... Hey, people are getting killed in the financial crisis. No one wants to read me yammering about it, but they do. And then they would make a really obnoxious comment. That said, I didn't think that that was I didn't never extrapolated that to the rest of American society. No, I think though, but that stuff is always there, and that's. Uh, but you think of it as a streak, as like uh, you know, a couple of outsider cranks. No, it's it's. It a, kind of feels like it's a little more expansive than it was. I actually wrote something. It's not it's not in arguing with zombies, but I wrote something uh 
uh, early 2000s about about um, um, actually about France, where the uh, at the National Front uh, had gotten a lot of votes in an election, and saying that there that there are angry people, that there's something like a quarter of the population in every right. advanced country who are who are all of these things, and that doesn't go away. The idea that we're angry, ever... disenfranchised, frustrated, and willing to express it in right. any, kicking the cat in any and, way they can. Yeah, and does anybody, uh, and, and, it's, and it's always the usual things. It's always about brown people. It's always, uh, um, I don't know if anybody listens to Tom Lehrer anymore, but he had a, a, a great satirical song from like 1961 about uh, the, the choruses, the Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the yep. Hindus hate the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews. Right. That's and uh, and that's, uh, so that's always there. But the point is that there was a sort of assumption that, that major, the majority of the population was like that, which was probably true in, uh, in the 50s. And it's not, uh, it, it's a lot better now. Mm-hmm. So just just as uh, economics advances one funeral at a time, does the enlightenment of America advance one generation at a time? Is that what's going on? Well, s- some. I mean, although there are plenty of uh, you know there are plenty of horrible young people mm-hmm. and plenty of uh, pretty decent older people. So it's not that straightforward. But it's uh, it. I think it is true that that the younger younger generations are more tolerant than older generations and. Um, on the other hand, you know, I grew up in the '60s, and I did watch lots of uh, Age of Aquarius people turn into uh, Wall Street traders. So uh, that's not always the the case that people. Right. What, what's the old joke? You're you're uh, heartless if you're not a, a socialist when you're young, and a capitalist when you're older. I know uh, I'm no, and, anyone anyone who's who is not a socialist under thirty has no heart. Anyone who's still a socialist after thirty has no head. There you go. That was the old line. That that's a great joke. So we're down to our last two. Um, questions. Speaking of young people, what sort of advice would you give a college graduate or millennial who was interested in exploring a career in economics? Okay. Um, so, you know, first of all, do get the education. Um, and Does that mean doctorate or how far do you go? Well, it depends on what you want to do. But you want to, you're going to need some kind of graduate degree to get entree into stuff. A master's in some cases is good enough, but the, uh, but you do need some certification. Um, you know, the thing I can say is um, that uh, it, it's you do do figure out what you're good at, and and something that interests you, but not necessarily. Of cosmic importance. Figure out something that's really good and uh, that 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 you do well, and get that as a kind of a baseline. Uh, you can you can branch out. You can start to do stuff like writing newspaper columns or so on later on. But you do want to get that uh, baseline. In fact, your contribution to society. Uh, by and large, basically the answer is don't try to be me. Uh, uh, not yet. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the I, I quote in, in Arguing with Zombies, I quote, there was an essay by Raymond Chandler on writing on writing books. And he, he said, you know, that there have been some very dull books written about God and some very fine books written about uh, making a living while staying fairly honest. So focus on where you can actually add. I, I like that. And our final question, what do you know about the world of economics today? that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were first ramping up your career? Oh, actually, see, the thing is, I, my, my career has been, you know, I, I, uh, I, the, the, the angels were smiling on me. I've had an optimal career. There's never been anything that, that 
uh, everything broke the right way for me in ways that there's you know, just uh, I had no right to 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 expect. Uh, so it's not that. Um, what I there is now a major uh, sort of scandal uh, has pretty much come up in economics where we're realizing just how strong the misogyny within the profession has been, oh, just really? how badly uh, uh, people, how badly women have been treated, you know, not Harvey Weinstein level, but but lots of, of discrimination. Is this in terms of hiring or publishing or promotion? Everything. Across hiring, the publishing, the, the way that they're treated in seminars, and of course then they, uh, thanks to, uh, we have, you know, anonymous social media, we know the way that, that some male economists talk about uh, their female colleagues, um, and I was oblivious. Mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe had some sense, but I didn't realize. I don't think I was ever you know, doing it, but I wasn't um, campaigning to to say let's stop this. So I, I really wish that I had been more aware. I was sitting there comfortably, you know, in a, a, a super comfortable environment. I mean, I was, I had all the qualifications. I had the right school. I was white. I was male. I was Jewish, which actually in, in economics in my generation was sort of normal. Didn't hurt. Right. Uh, and, um, and had no idea what a lot of people were going through. Um, and so I, I regret if I had if I had had a better sense of what was really going on, maybe I could have contributed a little bit to making it better. Huh. Interesting observation along those lines. Paul, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Paul Krugman, professor at CUNY Graduate School, as well as the author, most recently, of Arguing with Zombies. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the 300-plus conversations we've had over the past five-plus years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Check out my daily reads on ritholtz.com, my weekly column on bloomberg.com, Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Sam Shivraj is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>